This is Leader ReadyCast, a monthly podcast featuring real-world lessons, best practices, and action-oriented insights for the Urit moments when you're called upon to lead. Leader ReadyCast is the official podcast of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, a joint program of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard John F. Kennedy School of Government. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Welcome to Leader ReadyCast. I'm your host, Eric McNulty, and it's time for our annual year-end look back and look forward. Given all that's happened in 2020, it's been quite a year. I'm a little afraid to look back, and I'm actually quite excited to turn the page on a new year, as I'm sure many of you are as well. Now, joining me today for this is Chloe Demrovsky. She's the president and CEO of DRI International. DRI stands for Disaster Recovery Institute, and DRI is the oldest and largest nonprofit that helps organizations around the world prepare for and recover from <clears throat> disasters by providing education, accreditation, and thought leadership in business continuity, disaster recovery, cyber resilience, and related fields. So Chloe surely knows this territory well, and we're really fortunate to have her with us today that we can tap into her expertise. Chloe, welcome to Leader ReadyCast. Thanks, Eric. It's a great pleasure to be here with you. I'm really excited you made time for us today. Now, when I think about this year, and the first thing that comes to mind for me is an oft-quoted lyric from the Grateful Dead. What a, what a long, strange trip it's been. Uh, there's been a lot of twists and turns this year. So we've, we've seemed to have seen it all, yet we didn't see a whole lot of it coming. Uh, what are your top-line leadership lessons learned from this turbulent year? Well, that's true. It is kind of that time where you start to look back and reflect. Um, I write for Forbes as well as my role at DRI. And around this time of year, I usually write... Um, here's what the risks are that you should be thinking about for the coming year. And so it's funny to look back on what I wrote for, for 2020, because I remember going through it and thinking about, should I include something about pandemics in here? And then I thought, nah, nobody's really been paying attention to that topic recently. I mean, we always look at it and include it, but it's not the thing that's really getting a lot of attention. You know, it's cyber resilience and supply chain. I'll leave pandemic out. And well, boy, was I wrong. <laughs> didn't even get through the first quarter before it became the only issue that anybody cared about. So, you know, it certainly was a change. And when I think about why it's so important to, to be reflective and to be broad enough in, in preparing and assessing your risk landscape as a leader, as an organization, you really do have to think about all of the different kinds of risks that could occur. Because just because you've been focused on one and you're, you feel like you're really, you know, you've really looked at your cyber resilience and you've gotten that part of your organization really set, it's going to be something else. It's going to be a wildfire or a pandemic or something else. So you do have to make sure that your, your lens is broad enough to look at a variety of threats and assess what their impact to your organization would be and then the likelihood that they would occur to help you kind of prioritize and make sure that you're constantly checking in with that full list and rebalancing. And in some ways, if you've built the right uh, preparedness and response capability in the organization, you should be able to handle a range of threats, even those, even ones you didn't quite consider fully. Well, that uh, is because definitely of, true. And what I would say is that, you know, in, in the methodologies that we teach and the way we think about it, we're always encouraging our students and, and resilience professionals more broadly to start with effects-based planning rather than cause-based planning. And so that way you can be a lot more flexible because you're really getting to, okay, how would whatever this thing is affect my organization and what do I need to put in place 
so that I can deal with whatever those effects might be. Because if you focus so intensively on the causes, you can get wrapped up in thinking about all the different permutations of causes. But a lot of different kinds of incidents or crises have similar effects. So that gives you a, a smaller, more concrete list of things that you have to deal with, and you can be much more practical in the approach. Yeah, that, that's a great uh, a great way of looking at it because you're right. The effects are where you're going to need to take your action. So thinking about what's going to affect it and how, how it might affect it is a great place to start. Um, and I know one of the great examples I heard this year with one of the uh, the software companies, the company makes uh, sharing and, and, and uh, collaborative work software. Uh, they had decided well before the pandemic that whenever any one person had a call into a meeting, they all had a call into a meeting. So they'd gotten used to working virtually uh, well before this happened. And so when it hit, they were able to move seamlessly into a remote working environment. And uh, again, it's such a simple step that I think most companies didn't think of, most organizations didn't think of little things we can do day to day that will get us ready for whatever may hit us because we've anticipated the effect and therefore gotten ready for it. Yeah, that's great. I'm, I've been talking to various leaders about that and thinking about how you can make sure that your meetings are inclusive because it is true when you get when you get back into hybrid work environments, you don't want to penalize those people who may have to stay remote for a while. And um, we had kind of had those kinds of meetings for a long time, but definitely moving forward, I will instate a policy whereby, you know, if anybody is remote, then at least we all have to have a computer in front of us with you know the camera on or something so that they can feel like they're participating in the room in the same way and that they're not penalized for not being a person in the room because that's not really the reason you wanna not hear someone's ideas or deprioritize what they're saying in a meeting just because they don't happen to be in the room. Absolutely. This has been a, such a crazy year in terms of disasters. It's, all, it's almost hard to think back to uh, what we were dealing with before the pandemic and what else we've dealt with during it, be it floods, wildfires, record number of hurricanes. Um, you know, it's, it's been all over the place. What has surprised you, both good and bad, in terms of the response of the professionals on the front lines, as well as policymakers and the general public? Well, I don't know if, if what I'm going to say is quite a surprise, but maybe it should have been, which is that we were definitely inundated with a flood of organizations and professionals from some surprisingly large and economically important organizations. And I should say that we deal with both private and public sector. So when I'm talking about organizations, it's, it's not sector specific. And the number of organizations that had either, if they had a pandemic plan, it was very outdated. Like maybe it had been updated in 2009 mm -hmm. um, or they just had literally no plan at all for dealing with a pandemic. And while I said that, you know, you need to deal with effects-based planning, pandemics have some really unique challenges that you have to prepare for. Social distancing is very different from an evacuation where we all kind of gather um, at, a, at, a point, at, a, at a point where we've decided in advance that we have to get together and sheltering and all of those things that might be more similar in like a, a natural disaster or a terrorist attack. But in a pandemic, we have to stay apart. So, so that's really, really, really different. I would say, you know, we do a, something called the Resilience Index every year, where we uh, survey global resilience professionals for what their organizations are concerned about in any given year. And so unsurprisingly, this year is very interesting. Pandemic <laughs> didn't make the top 10 for 2020, but for 2021, of course, it has shot right up to the top of for everyone. But uh, what was interesting is that um, only 6% of respondents to that survey felt that they had a fully comprehensive pandemic plan available when this happened. 
So that's concerning. (laughs) (laughs) Almost 50% of them felt that their organizations performed very well, despite that fact. And so I think some of that mismatch is a little bit about what we were talking about in that you have a, if you have a really good resilience program, you're looking more at effects-based planning and you can be more flexible because you have a lot of different plans that you can draw on. You've done a lot of that analysis. You have the teams in place and the communications tools and all of that to deal with it. But, you know, pandemics are something that is particularly different. So it's also funny that, you know, we do teach that effects-based planning in the core continuity, and we saw a surge in demand for core business continuity training um, from a variety of organizations that had already done training with us or new ones. Um, but, you know, we had also offered a pandemic preparedness for organizations workshop specifically, which would was just a one day rather than like a week-long course dealing with some of those kinds of exceptions around pandemics. And we had this class a while ago, but I don't think we'd sold it in North America since maybe 2010. I mean, we just didn't put it on the schedule because it didn't sell. And I think that shows. I mean, this year, of course, it ended up being a very popular course when we were able to kind of revise it and make it current um, and relevant for today. Um, so we will continue to see that moving forward. The exception to that, I would say, is that um, that course has been held in Asia several times per year, every single year. And I think you see that difference where they uh, pretty much across the, the, the region have had a strong focus on pandemics because they've had more recent and more regular um, experience, unfortunately, in addressing pandemics. So they really do take pr- pandemic preparedness very seriously um, in Asia. Absolutely. They, yeah, they've seen a lot more, at least they've seen more of the severe consequences of them. Uh, in recent years, so that that does make sense, and and I think that leaders may need to be doing a f- basic reassessment of where what risks sit where on the continuum of high frequency, low consequence, low frequency, high consequence, uh, because certainly some of these more severe events seem to be coming more frequently and uh, are more severe when they hit as well, and that the, the different different mindset of how you think about the risk and how you prepare for it. That's definitely true. I mean, if you want to hear just kind of the top 10 uh, that uh, professionals yes. come up with for this year, I think it's always interesting to look at. And it really does change every year. So, of course, pandemics is at the top. And then you have uh, long-term IT outages, which is one of those things that I don't think the senior executives really understand how bad that would be. They might have educated themselves about cyber attacks and sort of malicious behavior, but they don't realize that just a, a, some sort of outage or failure internally of the systems can cause such havoc on your organization. Um, and, and so that's kind of a regular um, issue that always a, a occurs. Then there's operational incidents, economic failure, which we're definitely seeing as a consequence of the pandemic and the, and the resulting kind of public health measures that were put in place. Then interestingly, uh, state-sponsored cyber attack, the theft of proprietary data, which I suspect is related, um, followed by severe weather events, excluding wildfires and seismic, because those were separate uh, categories, serious supply chain disruption, misuse of data, and then finally wildfires. So that's the top 10. But what I also think is very interesting is that, um, is what, how things move around. And so since last year, there were actually five issues that rose by four or more places on the resilience index. Wow. With that, yeah, I know. It's very interesting. It was 2020 was a major year of shift. And it's interesting that it's the beginning of a decade, right? <laughs> um, but those five issues are, unsurprisingly, pandemic, 
supply chain disruption. I mean, we've all forgotten a little bit maybe about what those empty shelves looked like and all the, the, the toilet paper rush, but uh, you know, the people who are charged with keeping those shelves stocks certainly have not forgotten what that, what that felt like <laughs> and what that looked like. Protests and civil unrest, which we certainly see. And if you look at the history of pandemics and different kinds of issues, that should not have come as a surprise that um, that would be kind of a knock-on effect of of shutdowns and, and, and unrest and uh, disruption in general. Then uh, state-sponsored cyber attacks, that's still very much a concern. I think that has to do with uh, um, some of the, the issues between the United States and Iran that happened right before the pandemic and that we all kind of got distracted from, but it's not like they really went away. And then finally, of course, the business impact of, of an economic downturn. So economic failure being a, a really valid concern moving forward into 2021 and beyond. It's interesting in that there seems to be a little, uh, I'm forgetting the, the name of the exact cognitive bias at play here, but that what, the, what they're seeing now is what they're thinking, see, seeing what they think is going to increase or be a major concern in the year ahead. Um, anything that you think they overlooked? So one thing that's particularly interesting from last year is that uh, there was um, the inability of senior management to handle a crisis a lack of crisis management experience by the senior executive. And I think we saw last year a lot of um, very public kind of failures by senior executives, the implosions that, you know, we work, for example, right? Yeah. Or um, uh, the, what's his name, Carlos Ghosn, who, you know, ended up in a, in a box and running um, <laughs> to, to uh, Lebanon. So we saw a lot of kind of spectacular implosions of senior executives. Um, but uh, this year, it really didn't show up at all. And it does, there was generally a sense among resilience professionals that not only did senior leaders rise to the challenge of this crisis, even if for a lot of them, it was really their first major crisis of this scale and magnitude, but that they were also willing to rely on the experience and include resilience professionals and the people who were kind of thinking about this all the time as a part of their planning, not just at the operational level, but increasingly at the strategic level as well. And so that demonstrates to me a kind of seriousness um, and good decision-making from senior leaders that they would be going and looking at who are, you know, tapping into the expertise within their organization and thinking, who are the people who really understand what a crisis is, what it could look like, who can help me kind of walk through the various scenarios about what these decisions will mean for us as an organization that will help us to weather um, this particular incident. What I think is really surprising in terms of um, a lot of the frameworks for planning that you know we put out that the standards and best practices and all of that generally is the timeline of this is so long, right? Um, you know. Yeah. It, it's it's not going to be three months. It's not six months. It's two to three years, realistically. Yeah. So that's a crisis of, of a magnitude and, and duration that I think many plans are not designed for. They're designed for kind of a sh shorter, more sudden shock rather than yes. something that could has the potential to turn into a chronic stressor like this does. Yeah, that's a really good point. I remember one of our MPLI project teams a couple of years back was looking at uh, electric uh, generation, electricity generation plants, and looking at the fragility of the grid. And when they were asking, do you have a plan for uh, an outage of more than 30 days? I believe no one actually had one. Uh, no, was, there's a reason for that because I think 
Um, it would, Ted Koppel looked at this a few years yes. ago yes. Life out, and I think he estimated that it would take one week for the U.S. to descend into total anarchy if we had you know, <laughs> extensive blackout, um, if someone were, was able to take out our grid. So 30 days, uh, you know, we're looking at uh, bonfires in our backyards at that point. Yeah, pretty much. So it's, it's a really, well, that's really interesting. Thank you for sharing all that from the survey. Um, now, another question I have for you is, is you, you know, you don't just deal in, in recovery at DRI, but you also address with preparedness and planning. Um, and maybe it's just an old saw, but it seems to be true to me as well, is that preparedness gets less attention and less funding than does you know, re response and recovery, which is sort of where the money is and where the glory is, the drama is. Um, do you think this year is going to help prepare just get its groove back. You think we may see more more attention paid to and more, more money going to let's get ready for the next uh what might be happening, maybe maybe prevent it and prepare for it rather than relying on response. I do think so. You know, we definitely see that too. Um, I think that after the 2017 hurricane season, which was very disruptive, we started to see some of this rethinking of um, you know, pouring a lot of money into response and recovery and thinking we really should have been better prepared and we should have worked more on prevention and, and being able to respond um, more effectively because you know, crises are natural, disasters are man-made. Uh, is that adage that um, kind of resilience advocates have been using for a while to try to get this message across. And I think some of that is actually coming across because it is very expensive. You do score a lot of political points if you can you know, secure a lot of recovery funding, but at a certain point, if these kinds of crises are happening over and over and over again, and we're not learning from our mistakes and preparing more effectively, uh, you know, that's, that's really not a, not, not a good look. And so we didn't just see, of course, the, the pandemic this year. We also had the wildfires. Mm -hmm. Those are going to keep happening. We had such an active hurricane season. That's not going away. So it, preparedness and prevention absolutely are key to having an effective response. You have to prepare, you have to plan, and you have to train in order to be able to recover effectively. And I think the other thing that's really important to keep in mind is that when there's a big crisis or a big shock of some kind, there's a brief window in there where there is an opportunity for change. Maybe the public is calling for it. People are questioning kind of the status quo. It's really, really hard to change how organizations, how communities, how nation states <laughs> operate, right? Like it's, we don't like to change that much. Right. But after a crisis, when you've kind of been forced into change anyway, there's an opportunity there to kind of seize that moment to build back better. But the only way that you can do that is if you've been thinking about what that might look like, what a resilient future would look like, what changes would need to be made in order to, to realize that more resilient future. And if you've put all of that preparedness in place and you have that messaging, that's the opportunity to say, okay, we can't let this happen again. This is how we're going to be more resilient in future. These are the changes we have to make so that we can better take care of our organizations, our communities, our nations, what have you, um, and better lead into a, a brighter future in a sense that, you know, while these, these continued shocks and, and things will always occur, but we can control how we respond to them. And that's where we have to put our effort. Yeah, I'm sure that you, as as I have seen, uh, because of the organizations we tend to work with, uh, that those that take preparedness and prevention seriously um, 
have to respond less often, or if they do, it's a more manageable situation because they really have, they've built the capacity, the capability, they've got that uh, sort of mental and physical muscle memory they can call upon. Well, they and, might be responding often, but you're not going to see it, right? Right, right. It it's, might be effort that happens behind the scenes, but you know, in, in this business, no news is, is good news, right? Like if, if you never hear about something, that means that they did a good job. So um, a lot, a lot might be happening. They might be responding, but they've been able to minimize the disruption right. to the extent where people might not even notice. And then the challenge, of course, with that becomes if they then lose budget accordingly because they say because they might hear that oh nothing happened. So I think we can trim this budget. We can reorganize. We can shift our priorities a little. And then oops. That's that's right. I remember uh, talking to Michael Leitner, who was at, uh, the Office of Director of National Intelligence a few years back, and he said, yeah, my job is if something happens, I get fired. If nothing happens, they cut my budget, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. uh-huh. <laughs> which is, you know, I, I think a lot of people in business continuity and emergency management li live in that world with that, uh, that strange tension. Uh, but it, as you say, it, it's so expensive now to respond and, and recover. And when you get hit with such a large event, like events like we've been hit with this year, uh, it shows you that anything you could have done to minimize the impact and be able to absorb the disruption as opposed to having to recover from it. Um, there's, a, there's a way, I think, also to kind of address this problem and to encourage further investment in prevention. And um, on the government side, this would be, you know, elected leaders looking into making sure that this happens. But on the private side, I think increasingly it has to come from the financial community and from the investor community to use business continuity and resilience as an indicator before they're willing to invest in an organization. Because too often, these are the kinds of, you know, quote unquote, cost centers that get cut so that yeah. they look good for investors. But if investors are saying, no, you really need to have this because what if another COVID-19 happens or something similar, it's not, it's, it, you know, it's, it's uh, not optional. You really have to have to have this in place. But I think unless you have that kind of pressure coming in from the, the right external parties, um, it's, it's going to continue to be deprioritized because with, especially with something like COVID where it's kind of this mass trauma, it's the kind of thing we really like to forget as quickly as possible in our collective yes. memory. And so that's the, that's the danger here. Absolutely. I think there'll be, a, a, though you're, your uh, survey showed otherwise. I think a lot of people, once we get to the vaccine, if vaccines widely distributed, they're going to say, okay, we had that bad that pandemic. We're good for another hundred years uh, and think they can move on, which is A, not guaranteed in terms of pandemics and B is, doesn't mean we couldn't have some other major, uh, major calamity that, that uh, stress the system in similar ways. Exactly. And it is unfortunate that, you know, since the unfortunate, Unfortunate, fortunate, uh, strange turn of phrase, but uh, it's been about exa almost exactly 100 years since the Spanish flu. And even with the history of the Spanish flu, a lot of the after effects that maybe were more caused by the Spanish flu, people actually ended up attributing to World War One instead. And so they forgot about how much a, a pandemic or a crisis can really change things and change outlooks, change perspective and change systems. And I, I think that something similar might happen here because it's not like it's going to be a, a popular conversation to say, well, where were you during the pandemic? <laughs> well, <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> unless someone was a doctor or a nurse, right? Um, you know, if they're a white collar professional, they were sitting in their, their living room or at their kitchen table going crazy on a, on a Zoom chat all day. That's right. That's right. Well, you're right. It won't. It won't be this. This the uh, stuff of folk tales. Uh, 
<laughs> so no. much. Um, I, I want to end on an upbeat note, and it's interesting you mentioned the 1918 pan, pandemic. Um, one of the odd things I've realized during this is that I'm only alive because of the 1918 pandemic. Um, I mean, the sad thing is my, my, my grandmother's first husband and her first two children uh, passed away as a result of the, of the Spanish flu. And she then emigrated from the UK to the United States, met my grandfather, and the rest is history. So there will be positive things coming out of, uh, out of this. So as you look forward into 2021. A COVID baby boomlet. Probably. A COVID baby, there you go. Um, maybe all be firstborns from what I hear. <laughs> it could be, that's right. Well, with the schools being closed and all. That's true, you're right. <laughs> so um, what gives you hope looking forward into 2021? So I, a lot actually, because I do think, if you think about the, the Renaissance, for example, that happened after the plague, right? Um, moments of, of crisis like this are opportunities for change, but it's especially with something like this, where we were just kind of lonely and apart for such a long time. I can only envision the kind of, once people are, are no longer afraid to kind of come out in public and to come together, human nature is gonna compel people together, right? All of that creative energy that has been bottled up, that have been sat on, all of the artists who've been out of work and sitting there kind of coming up with new ideas during this time, there's just gonna be an explosion of, you know, cultural activity, of togetherness, of new ideas, of people kind of coming together finally again. You know, people talk about how, oh, we're never gonna, you know, convene ever again. That's just not how human nature works. So yeah, these tools and these technologies that enable us to kind of come together have been an amazing, extraordinary um, new tool that we have to help us weather this kind of storm, but nothing beats in-person live human interaction. Um, and so I think we'll just see such an extraordinary number of, of exciting new events that come out of that as a result. And I, for one, cannot wait. Well, that's great. You are right. There's often a, a both economic growth as well as a spurt of creativity and innovation that comes after these major traumas that societies uh, suffer. So something to look forward to. So what's on tap for DRI in the year ahead? Where are you focusing your efforts? So, you know, it, it's certainly been a wild year for us, like with everyone else, you know, we transitioned to 100% remote training in March. Um, and we, we anticipate that that will continue through the first half of 2021 and probably somewhat beyond that as well. We're really thrilled that we were able to offer seamless access to 100% of our course catalog through all of that, as well as all of our other services. Um, in lieu of our annual conference, which generally happens in the first part of the year, uh, we're hosting a, a special event, a DRI Virtual Resilience Excellence Summit uh, that will be in March. And we're really excited to be able to give people the opportunity to kind of get that continuing education and learning and come together to celebrate the accomplishments of the resilience community. Uh, virtually, even though we can't convene in person. And then we're also really excited about some of our newer products. We have a, a new workshop out that we put out just recently, this, the Business Continuity Exercises Workshop. We've seen that exercising and training and preparing is really valuable for organizations um, to be able to better respond. So uh, that's, that's going to continue, as well as a number of new workshops in 2021. And we're also thrilled about the ongoing reception for our newest certification program in, in cyber resilience, because even though we've all been temporarily distracted by pandemic, you know, cyber resili resilience continues to be a, a real area of challenge for organizations. So I anticipate that we will see a lot more activity in that area moving forward. So lots to focus on, lots of excitement, and, and um, 
I'm happy to support the resilience community in every way that I can. Well, that's great. And they certainly need all the support you can give them right now. So we'll we'll look forward to a better 2021 and, be, and beyond. And the, the, the threats aren't going to go away, but hopefully we've learned a lot through this period that will help us be stronger and better prepared. Uh, Chloe Demarovsky, I want to thank you so much for joining us in this episode of Leader ReadyCast. And you can learn more about DRI and their programs at dri.org. And until our next episode, always be ready to lead when it matters most. You're it. Thank you for listening to Leader ReadyCast, the official podcast of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, a joint program of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Harvard John F. Kennedy School of Government's Center for Public Leadership. You can find more about our work, as well as our online classes and other programs, at our website, npli.sph.harvard.edu. You can follow us on Twitter at HarvardNPLI. You can find short videos in our content on YouTube. Search for at HarvardNPLI. And you can follow us on LinkedIn. Look for our company page, National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, where we post frequently. Again, thank you for listening. Please pass this podcast along. We look forward to being with you again soon.